Welcome to part two of this Journal Jam podcast. Anton Hellman here. In part one, we covered the world's most important literature on systemic IV lytics for stroke and concluded that actually it's kind of difficult to draw any conclusions as to the benefit or harm of systemic IV lytics for stroke because only two out of the 12 RCTs showed any benefit. There was a ton of bias in pretty much all the studies. Many were stopped early and the NINS trial, which seemed like a positive trial, never got replicated. In this podcast, Justin, Rory, and I are going to review the RCTs on emergency endovascular therapy for stroke. And just a heads up, the evolution and issues of the RCTs for the endovascular therapies similar to the IV lytics literature, but the outcomes look quite a bit better for a very small proportion of patients who suffer a stroke. There's two main types of endovascular therapies. There's intra-arterial TPA, and there's mechanical thrombectomies to remove clots that are occluding brain arteries. The pro-endovascular therapy folks out there claim that for some patients with proximal anterior circulation strokes, even though there's no mortality benefit, that there is a significant functional outcome benefit at 90 days. In fact, three recent meta-analyses of RCTs for endovascular therapy one out of the Lancet, one out of the BMJ, and one out of JAMA, all concluded that with a door-to-needle time under six hours, endovascular therapy, in addition to systemic lytics, improves outcomes without increasing the risk of head bleeds. Now, that being said, the first few trials of endovascular therapy were all negative, and it was only the later studies that had stricter entry criteria that found positive results. Now, that kind of sounds familiar to me, it's kind of like the systemic IV lytic trials, which begs the question, are these endovascular therapy studies just a repeat of how TPA was prematurely pushed as a standard of care for ischemic stroke? So although it sounds pretty familiar, Anton, I think we'll probably come to a slightly different conclusion here. Not to give away too much, but the trials here are a lot more consistent than what we saw with IV TPA or IV thrombolytics. We could make this one just really short and just look only at the most recent meta-analysis, but a lot like the lytic trials, there are still some problems with doing that in that a lot of different types of patients got into these trials and and the devices look very different. So that's what we would call clinical heterogeneity. And so there's a problem with just looking at one collection of the data. So we still think it's probably a good idea to just quickly go through all the trials so that we all have an understanding of exactly what we're talking about here. Yeah, I think like Justin said, I think when we're all done with this segment of the podcast, we're going to find that there probably is a benefit for these endovascular therapies. I think the nuance here is in who these patients are and and how many of them are, how often should we be doing this kind of treatment? Right. The big question is going to be which patients are really the ones who benefit the most from endovascular therapies. Uh, And with that, let's jump into the trials. Yeah, so although we said we might get to a positive point, like you mentioned, the first trials here were all pretty negative. So the first one that I would start with is the IMS3 trial. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2013. It's a multi-center randomized trial. Now, the big thing I'm going to point out here, and we're going to point it out for every single one of these trials, is that it's open label. None of these trials were blinded. 
In this trial, there were 650 adult patients, all of whom had received TPA within three hours of symptom onset uh, and had an NIH strike score of 10 or more. And what they were comparing was TPA plus endovascular therapy, and the TPA was given at two-thirds of the usual dose, uh, and they compared that to intravenous TPA alone. And they were looking at our all-too-familiar modified Rankin scale uh, at 90 days. And in this trial, there was no difference. There was no difference in the primary outcome. It was approximately 40% in both groups. There was no difference in mortality, and there was no difference in symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage. Now, there was a slight increase in asymptomatic intracranial hemorrhage with endovascular therapy. Uh, It was 27% versus 18.9% with a p-value of 0.01. Now, this trial was stopped early for futility, uh, and they had originally planned to enroll up to 900 patients. Uh, So much like with our early stroke trials, the first one stopped early for futility. The second article, again, was also published in the same issue of the New England Journal of Medicine in 2013, and it too was an open-label multicenter randomized controlled trial. And they enrolled 362 adult patients, 18 to 80 years old, with ischemic stroke, and the time window here was four and a half hours from symptom onset for TPA and six up to six hours for the intervention. So the interesting part here was the intervention group got endovascular therapy though they didn't receive any IV TPA. Um, And this was compared to a group which received only IV TPA. And this is actually the only study that we have that looked at endovascular therapy without TPA and compared it to TPA alone. And their primary outcome was disability-free at 90 days, which is a a modified Rankin scale of zero or one. And again, like the IMS-3 trial, they found no benefit to the endovascular therapy. Functional outcomes were essentially identical at 90 days. Mortality was essentially identical. And again, no difference in symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage. Now, the endovascular treatment group took about one hour longer to get started than IV TPA. And accepting different times for different groups might be problematic if you believe the time-to-brain hypothesis. So we have two negative trials in the New England Journal of Medicine. If you turn one more page in the same issue, we now find Mr. Rescue, the third paper in the same trial. And this is another multicenter randomized trial open label. And they included 118 patients. Uh, You had to be within eight hours of a large vessel anterior circulation stroke. All patients were treated with TPA if they were eligible. And then you had to have a CT angiogram after TPA to prove that you hadn't had recanalization. And they compared mechanical embolectomy to just standard care. Again, looking at functional outcomes at 90 days. And they had the exact same mean score on the modified Rankin scale at 90 days. There weren't differences in any of the outcomes that they present, although a high number of patients in the endovascular group had complications, 24% of them. The one other thing that I would mention about this trial, and it's going to come up over and over and over again, is that the patients that get into these trials are an exceptionally select subgroup. So in this trial, they enrolled 127 patients. That was from 22 centers over seven years, which means that each center was able to contribute less than one patient per year. We're going to see this over and over again, but the patients who get into these endovascular trials are not your average stroke patients. They're a very select population. 
So that's definitely an important aspect of all these trials for endovascular therapy, that there's really just a tiny percent of patients that actually qualify for endovascular therapy for stroke. Now, those are all the negative trials. Now let's get on to the juicier stuff, and that is uh, the positive trials for endovascular therapy. Yeah, so so up until 2015, every single randomized trial that examined endovascular therapy for acute ischemic stroke was negative. And then Mr. Clean was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2015, which may or may not have the best name for a trial to date. Um, but this essentially was a pragmatic multicenter randomized control trial, which like the rest of the trials were open label, though they did blind the evaluators who were testing for their primary endpoint. And they enrolled five hundred patients, 18 years or older with ischemic strokes. And the initiation of their intervention had to be done within six hours of symptom onset. The patients had to have large anterior circulation strokes that were either in the distal internal carotid, middle cerebral artery, or anterior cerebral artery. And this was based on CT or MR angio. And the patients were randomized to either interarterial TPA and at the discretion of the treating physician, mechanical or interarterial thrombolysis, or both. And this was compared to usual care, which if eligible patients received IV TPA. And the primary outcome here, again, was the modified Rankin score at 90 days, which in this case was collected by a telephone interview. So the result. So like we said, that this, Mr. Clean, was the first positive trial examining endovascular therapy in acute CVA and improved functional independence, an MRS score of zero to two, was seen in 32.6 of the patients in the endovascular arm versus only 19% of the patients in the, in the usual care arm. And this was an absolute risk reduction of 13.5%. Mortality at 30 days was exactly the same at around 18%, and there was also no change in symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage. You know, like we saw in the last trial, it took 16 sites over three years to enroll 502 patients. That's less than 10 patients per site per year or less than one patient per month. And the outcomes here were distinctly bad. In the NINS trial, the TPA cohort had achieved a modified ranking scale of zero or one 39% of the time. Here in Mr. Clean, we only saw that 6% of the control group achieved this level of functional independence. The interventional group actually fared far worse than the NINS treatment group. There's a whole bunch of questions that come up here. You know, was Mr. Clean positive because they used the right equipment? Was Mr. Clean positive because they selected the right patients? Was it more positive because they rapidly opened up the occluded vessels? Or was it just kind of random chance? Yeah, and I think if you were following along at this literature when this trial came up, a lot of very smart people thought that this was probably just going to be by chance alone. But unlike the thrombolytic therapy, it seems like we've been proven wrong. There seems to be a pretty consistent trend after Mr. Clean of positive trials. So the next trial that came out just a few months later was the Extend IA trial. So in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2015. Again, it's multicenter, it's randomized, and like all these trials, it's open label. This trial only had 70 patients. These were all patients who were receiving TPA in that less than four and a half hour window. And they all had to have an occlusion of their internal carotid or their middle cerebral artery. And what makes this study stand out is we're starting to use perfusion imaging, special imaging that lets us see, is there salvageable brain tissue on CT perfusion imaging? And so again, they compared TPA plus endovascular therapy to TPA alone. And they were looking at 
in this trial, outcomes at 24 hours. And what they saw is there was more reperfusion at 24 hours, not really a clinically important outcome, but more of these arteries were opening up. They also saw increased neurologic improvement at three days, so 80% improvement as compared to only 37% improvement at three days. And they also saw some long-term improvement, so improved functional independence on a modified record scale of zero to two was 71% with treatment as compared to 40% with no treatment. Aside from that, there was no statistical difference in mortality, and there was no difference in symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage. The same comments we're going to make over and over again are two major shortcomings of this trial. Number one, the trial was stopped early. They originally wanted to get 100 patients, but when they saw the Mr. Clean results, they stopped the trial early. And also, again, it's a very select group of patients. They only managed to enroll 2.5 patients at each hospital every year. So shortcomings, very select patients, and it was stopped early, but it looks like a pretty positive trial. Yeah, I think at this point we should briefly talk about what the problem with stopping a trial early is and what that can mean for your data, because we're going to see this on almost every single try from here on out. And the interesting part is what Mr. Clean did to the remainder of this data, because essentially when Mr. Clean was published, every single other trial that was going on stopped their data and took a look at it to see what it was. And if it was positive, they stopped it and published it. And that can have significant effects on your outcomes or on the effect size of your outcomes. Um, so I think we, briefly we should just jump into that. Yeah, absolutely. And so we already we talked a little bit about missing data in the thrombolytics trial, but actually it's a, a somewhat different issue that we're concerned about here. When you stop trials early because you're seeing a benefit, there tends to be a trend towards overestimating that benefit. When you have a the random walk of, of data going through your trial, you don't stop the trial when you haven't reached a very large benefit. And so those trials continue. But when you see a big benefit, you stop it early. And so what these trials tend to do over and over again is overestimate the level of benefit. That doesn't mean that the benefit's not there. And they're using some statistics to, to show that the benefit would probably have been there at the end of the trial, but it tends to make that benefit look better than it actually would have been. Right. So, I mean, essentially, if you just look at this from a practical point of view, if you were the the authors doing this trial and you kind of saw Mr. Clean's outcomes and, and unlocked your data and took a look at it, if there was no statistical stiffness, you would just keep doing the trial, right? And so these trials will only be shopped early if they, in fact, show a benefit. So just by the random cyclical nature of trials and how sometimes the benefit is larger and sometimes it's less, there's always a regression to a certain mean. Um, the trials that don't show benefit when the data is analyzed early will not be stopped early. So you have somewhat of a sampling bias that kind of shifts the data towards a better outcome than the underlying reality. All right, so speaking of trials that were stopped early, uh, Rory, you want to bring us to the next one? I think we have Escape up next. Yeah. So the next one is Escape, again, published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2015 in the same issue as Extend IA. Um, and this trial looked at 316 adult patients with strokes with, that had an NIH stroke scale of greater than five. Um, they intended enrolling 500 patients, but again, was stopped early because of this premature interim analysis. Um, and they enrolled patients within 12 hours 
hours after symptom onsets. And, you know, they did something similar to extend IA where they tried to get a sense of how much salvable tissue there was, um, but they didn't use CT perfusion standings. Instead, they used an aspect score on a non-contrast CT and uh, used that along with a CTA that demonstrated a large MCA occlusion um, with good collateral flow. So this was kind of a surrogate for what a perfusion scan would give you with a, a ischemic penumbrum. The intervention was endovascular treatment, and they compared that to standard care, and, and their primary outcome was the modified Rankin score at 90 days. And like Extend IA, they found increased functional independence at 90 days. 53% of the patients in the endovascular group compared to 29.3% in the control group. They also showed a reduced mortality, which was 10% in the endovascular group and 19% in the control group. And again, no change in symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage. And again, we're going to see these same things over and over again. Yes, this trial was stopped early. It was planned to have 500 patients, but because of Mr. Clean, it was stopped early for benefit. And then if you actually look at how they enrolled patients, they said they enrolled about 1.44 patients per center per month. Like we're saying, this is incredibly small number of specifically selected stroke patients we're dealing with here. And they said something specific in this trial that reminds us of how this is going to fit into our overall treatment plan. They specifically say they did not keep track of which patients they screened to, to get into this trial. And that's going to be our issue as we go along. We have no idea how many patients they screened to find those one or 0.75 patients a month. And you can imagine if you're doing contrast studies and imaging studies on thousands of patients, that's going to affect our harm benefit ratio as we try to balance this out. It's also going to affect how we build our systems and, and, and the costs. So I'm sure that we're going to come back to that, but they very specifically tell us we didn't bother keeping track of the number of people we screened. We only tell you about the people who we enrolled in the trial. We can move on. We have another paper in this series. The next one up is Swift Prime. Again, it gets in into the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, I always find that funny because it's no longer novel or new. It's showing the same kind of stuff, but it gets into the New England Journal of Medicine. It's similar to what we've talked about. It's multi-center. It's randomized. Again, it's not blinded. This time, they had 196 patients that actually got enrolled. These were all adult patients who received TBA and who could get to endovascular therapy within six hours. And again, perfusion imaging, they had couldn't have a large ischemic core on this perfusion imaging. And they were comparing this endovascular treatment in addition to TPA, to TPA alone, looking at functional outcomes at 90 days. And once again, there is an improvement. So in terms of that MRS score of zero to two, the endovascular group did well at 60% as compared to only 35% with the IV TPA alone. This time there was no difference in mortality. And like all these studies, this study was stopped early for mortality and very few patients made it in. Only two and a half patients per hospital per year made it into this trial. This one was a little bit different because they did change their imaging criteria halfway th through the study, uh, but it's not clear to me exactly how that's going to affect the outcomes. Yeah, it, it seems like they just kind of expanded it a little bit to let um, some patients with slightly larger uh, ischemic cores into the actual cohort. In my sense, that would only make the outcomes worse, so kind of strengthen the trial a little bit. 
All right, so moving on. So the last of this kind of cohort was the Revascat trial published alongside Swift Prime in, again, the New England Journal of Medicine in 2015. It was a big year for endovascular therapy. Um, and this too was a multi-center randomized open label trial, a total of 206 adult patients who could be treated within eight hours of their symptom onset. Um, and these patients had to have imaging confirming anterior circulation occlusions and couldn't have a large infarct size. And so this was a specific population here compared to the other trials where these patients had to either be ineligible for TPA or had to have TPA but had not recannulized within 30 minutes of receiving the IV medication. They were randomized to endovascular therapy with a solitaire stent retriever in addition to the medical management or medical management alone. And the primary outcome, again, modified Rankin scale at 90 days. And similar to the last trials, they found a higher rate of functional independence, an MRS score of zero to two in the endovascular therapy group, 43.7% versus 28.2%. And mortality, again, was not statistically different, 18.4 versus 15.5. And, you know, again, just like the remainder of this trials, this one was stopped early because of the loss of equipoise after the publication of the Mr. Clean results. And they had originally planned to enroll 690 patients. I'll point out there's a difference though. In all the other trials, they'd at least crossed some pre-specified boundary for stopping the trial. Whereas here, they specifically said, we didn't cross any of those boundaries, but Mr. Clean pretty much convinces us that we're going to stop the trial anyway. There's another interesting note that I took out of this trial that I, th I think tells you a little bit about the bias that we're going to see through all these trials. So in order to be a hospital that was allowed to be part of this trial, you had to already be performing more than 60 mechanical thrombectomy procedures every year. Now, remember, when this trial was started, all the previous trials had been negative. So what hospital is performing 60 of these procedures a year when all the science had been negative to date? So why were they performing all these? Obviously, because they think that they work. And so that tells you something. There is going to be some level of bias here. And we're going to talk about this a little bit more. But the big problem with that is, again, these were all unblinded trials. And we've already talked about how the modified ranking score is a little bit subjective. So thankfully, we didn't have to go through that many RCTs in the endovascular trials. Is there any other literature out there that helps us understand these endovascular trials a bit better. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things we've been harping on throughout this kind of uh, the segment of the podcast is how few patients are really eligible for endovascular therapy. And like Justin was saying earlier, it's really hard to figure out what the denominator is. So how many patients did they see versus how many patients actually received the therapy? But with the Revascat trial, we kind of have a little window into this because all patients included in the Revascat trial were also included in the national register known as the Sonia Registry. Uh, and, and the Sonia registry included 2,576 patients, which was only about 15.6% of all stroke patients seen in the country. Um, and these were the subgroup of stroke patients who received some form of reperfusion therapy. And the vast majority of these patients, 2,036, received only TPA. And so 540 or 21 of these patients underwent endovascular therapy and only 111 were eligible to be enrolled in the Revascat trial. So what this amounts to is 
about only 4.3% of patients in this own your registry and only about 0.3% of all stroke patients during the two-year period were eligible for inclusion in the Revascat trial. So as we see throughout all these trials, this is a small, small minority of stroke patients that are actually eligible for endovascular treatment. All right. So to sum up the major issues with the endovascular trials, first, none of the endovascular therapy trials were blinded. Second, as you were just saying, a, a tiny percentage of patients actually qualify for endovascular therapy. Third, there's all kinds of intrinsic bias in these trials in terms of them being performed at these highly specialized hospitals. And lastly, you know, the resources needed to implement endovascular therapies are so huge for, again, this tiny subset of patients. So taking into account all the trials of the systemic lysis and endovascular therapy uh, for stroke, what kind of conclusions can we draw? So I think this is still more difficult than it might seem on the surface. Clearly, unlike the IV thrombolytics, there is a very clear trend in the recent literature of a lot of positive trials. Unlike IV thrombolytics, if I came into your hospital tomorrow with an acute ischemic stroke and I fit these criteria, I would probably want you to get me in to get an endovascular therapy right now. But that being said, if you ran a new trial and it was completely blinded tomorrow, I'm not 100% sure that it would be positive. And I say that because of everything we talked about in the last, last episode. So the outcomes we're talking about here are all measured on the modified ranking scale. And because of that, there's a lot of subjectivity. And you're doing an intervention where everybody knows that you got the special new interventional therapy. Your doctor knows it. Your nurse knows it. Your family members know it. You know it. That can have a huge impact on whether you think you need a little bit of help or a lot of help at home three months down the line. And so although these are all multi-center randomized trials, I think you still have to rate the level of evidence as low. I think the quality of these studies is low. So although consistent, I'm not 100% sure what this finally tells us. Yeah, I think to take that even a little bit further, not only are we not sure, I don't think we're sure the effect size at all these trials and what they're telling us. Um, is it the amazing benefits seen in the extend die and escape trial where, you know, people are rising from the dead off the endovascular tables, or is it more the kind of mediocre effect size seen in the Mr. Clean data? And we know because of all this non-blinding, but even more importantly, stopping these trials early, it's really hard to get a good idea of how beneficial this kind of therapy is. I think I've moved to the point where, yes, I'm pretty sure this stuff probably works. I just don't know how well and how often. And then there's the, the much bigger issue that we, we face here. We said it over and over and over again. Very few patients get into these trials. And that's a big issue for me for two reasons. Number one, it actually affects the individual patient in front of you in terms of harms and benefits. Because if you have to do a contrast scan on thousands of patients, although or maybe we'll bring up this idea of contrast and its harms in a, in a future episode. But if we have to do contrast scans on thousands of patients to find one who's eligible, we actually might be harming a lot of patients before you find the one that doesn't 100% get a benefit, but maybe gets a 10% chance at, at a benefit. So issue number one is these trials don't tell us at all about the larger harms to patients by rushing and by giving contrast and doing more studies than they may have needed. 
Issue number two, by having very few patients enrolled, there's a much bigger societal issue here. If you're in a small rural hospital, should you therefore be rushing every patient, getting every patient into an ambulance, losing your ambulance for your small town and sending them all to a massive center that can do this kind of stuff for a less than 1% chance that they're eligible for this therapy? That's not a patient level question. I'm actually not even sure that doctors are the ones who should be answering that question. I'm a little bit worried though that we're just going to sweep that question under the rug. There's a bigger issue of cost and systems here that needs to be addressed when it's a maybe a real benefit, but a small benefit to a very small number of patients. Yeah, I mean, I think you're looking at at two things and you have to look at both sides of the coin when you always look at this stuff. For the few patients that it's benefit, yes, there probably is a benefit, but is it worth, we would literally have to retrain an army of interventionalists, staff endovascular centers 24 hours a day, Recoordinate our pre-hospital system to shuttle all these patients to the right patients. Again, for all for one patient per center per month, and that never looks at the other side of the coin. Like you said, we're taking these ambulance ambulances away from patients that may otherwise need them. I'm bumping my critically ill septic patient with belly pain off the CT scanner so this other patient can get three scans, and you know it throws off your whole kind of movement through your emergency department when the code stroke circus comes into town. Yeah, I mean, I hope there's going to be some studies that look at these systems issues in terms of the risk benefit of what happens to the entire department at different kinds of hospitals that implement code strokes. And Anton, I don't want to sound too cynical, but on this issue, I really don't think there's going to be. Just from simple experience, I think that we're already seeing this being done. But more importantly, this whole issue, just read these studies, and it sets itself up for indication creep. Because remember, in most of these studies, it was less than one patient a month that was eligible. But you have to have a trained interventionalist on call 24 hours a day. How do you fund a 24-hour on-call position with one patient a month. You just can't do it. And so what happens naturally to pay for that position, you have to do more patients than would have got into these these trials. And we're going to see more and more patients who wouldn't have been included in these trials having interventional therapies done, done to them, partially because of optimism, partially because we think it, we hope it might work, but partially because you have to if you have this system in place. And that worries me a little bit because again, you lose the research that we should have had because all of a sudden, instead of being a promising experimental therapy, this becomes quote unquote standard of care, which is a problem. Right. And and the cohorts that we're enrolling look, look a lot more like the negative trials we saw early on that didn't select this very specific population. But I, I think we're already there. Anyone that works at the big stroke center sees that there's a ton of indica- indication creep. To get into this trial, like you said, you have to be doing 60 of these interventions per year, which means you're doing it on a whole lot of patients that don't meet the entry criteria to make it into these trials. You know, I, I had a stroke interventionist tell me not so long ago that his criteria to perform endovascular therapy on the patient was on the CT scan, the non-contrast CT scan, he saw a gaze deviation in the eyes. And that made him think that there was a large enough uh, vascular deficit that he could go get with an endovascular therapy, which is absurd, right? But this is the kind of stuff we're seeing out there in the actual community. 
and and we don't want to be too too negative here. I mean, I still have some questions about the underlying quality of this this data, but I think the big difference between what we saw with thrombolytics and what we're seeing here is what we sort of alluded to a few times. We're starting to use this fancy technology. Whether that's really the difference, I can't be sure, but we're looking for salvageable brain. You know, physiologically, this never made a lot of sense to me, right? We know from drowning, from everything else, your brain tissue, your brain cells start dying at three minutes, at six minutes, at nine minutes. So treatment at three hours makes sense how? And it makes sense because we think that there's collateral flow. We think that there's an area of the brain that we might be able to save if we get in there. And the difference here is the CT scan shows the patients that have this perfusion deficit. And so maybe we have found ST elevation. Maybe we found the subgroup of patients that actually need therapy. I'd love to go back and see, does IVTPA work only in those patients with a perfusion deficit? Because maybe that's the, the, that's the subgroup. But again, with indication croup, my big worry here isn't necessarily, does this work, does it not work? But are we going to forget about that SD elevation and go back to treating everybody, treating everybody with a troponin bump, treating everybody with chest pain? That would be a worry. Yeah, and I think you hit the nail on the head. These trials, what they show us is there is a subgroup of patients that benefit from reperfusion therapy. And that subgroup is much, much smaller than what we saw in the IVTPA literature. You know, when we want to try to identify the patients that would truly benefit, this would mean narrowing our cohort of patients that should get these kind of therapies, but money and indication creep, all these motivations are shifting us to extend them to wider and wider groups of patients where we can only do harm. All right, let me ask you guys one more question. And what do you think the future of research and the future of how these systems work for code strokes and endovascular therapy are going to be, if you could predict the future, what do you think is going to be happening in five years, 10 years from now? I'll try to go first and I'll try not to sound too too cynical. I think the real answer is we might be at the end of research. Uh, we now have a new standard of care and we'll move, move forward from there. Uh, I think realistically, I would not be surprised if that happened and all we see is observational data from this point out. I think ideally, what we might see is that we run further trials to figure out exactly what subgroup of patients benefits from interventional therapy. And then what we notice is that more and more, when you compare IVTPA to interventional therapy, the IVTPA doesn't seem to be adding anything, providing any benefit. Uh, and it may lead the way to exactly what we've, we've always wanted, which would be either the replication of NINS2, an actual IVTPA study, because now we're not sure if it helps, or to a completely new type of therapy that we know helps our patients. Yeah, I, I think, you know, you can break this down on what you would like to see with what Justin said, trying to identify the specific patients that would actually benefit from revascular therapy. And I think if that was actually done, you would see just that, that patients, it's a small group of patients that it, that would benefit from endovascular therapy and very few actually benefit from IV TPA or IV thrombolytics. Um, what I think will happen is just whatever money and profit will dictate. And so I think both from the IV TPA standpoint and from the endovascular 
trials are going to come out trying to push the indications, push the patients that receive these expensive and costly treatments, because that's what's going to make manufacturers of both IVTPA and these endovascular devices the money that kind of drives this kind of research forward. I suppose the really pessimistic view would be that our healthcare systems are going to completely run out of money and all of this stuff is not going to happen at all. (laughs) Yeah, and we don't want to end on a overly negative uh, note. As compared to the thrombolytics trial, it looks like we may have now found either a subgroup of patients or a treatment that actually helps. We might be able to help our patients. We might be able to look forward to something if we ever have a stroke that, that, that could help us. And that's great. But the whole If that was the easy answer, there would be no reason to do this podcast. The reason we're doing the podcast is so that we all understand that there's still reason to do more research. There's still reason to do more research. All the shortcomings that we discussed need to be kept at the forefront of our mind as we push forward to make sure that we don't inadvertently hurt patients by using a therapy that's not proven. All right, gentlemen. Well, It never ceases to amaze me the incredible insights you two have into uh, the emergency medicine literature out there. Thank you so much uh, for joining us again on uh, EM Case's Journal Jam. I hope we'll have a lot of discussion in the emergency departments with our neurology colleagues about the present and future of code strokes and lytic as well as endovascular therapy for strokes. Maybe your heart is just too 